Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Well, it's been a couple of weeks, Dave. I apologize. Last week, my schedule got away from me and we weren't able to record an episode, but good to be back, especially the day after a great Red Sox victory over the Yankees. Uh, I know you had a big week last week with your birthday and then this weekend heading to Houston, right? That's right. Turn the big five. Oh, last Wednesday. So actually your inability to, uh, to do the show last Wednesday helped because I was able to kind of go around at, at that time. We usually do the show and have, uh, have the grammar school classes serenade me with uh, uh, happy birthday wishes. It was a pretty neat experience. Uh, That's great. It's a difference between uh, college and, and K through 12 is uh, the kids. I think I got over 300 uh, birthday cards. So Probably wow. more birthday cards in one day than I've had in my entire life. So, yeah, real, really, yeah, great, great uh, community here, and it's been a great week. Uh, other than the Patriots losing to the Bucks, um, that was that was kind of a downer. But uh, Mac Jones played well, and yeah, we're excited to go to uh, Galveston and and spend the weekend there, and hopefully watch the Patriots uh, turn around their season and get back in the win column. So, yeah, I mean, you feel like. If there's going to be a game that they ought to win uh, pretty handily, it's a, it's a game against Houston at this point. So I uh, saw that Mac Jones's left guard and left tackle are on the COVID list. So that's not super encouraging, but yeah, he's shown, I think he's shown overall that he's, he's a keeper at least. And there's reason for optimism might be still a challenging year to play out uh, difficult division and all the rest, but, but I think there's reason for optimism down the road. So there's one thing that you don't doubt after watching that game is that Chris Collinsworth thinks so, right? He's, I think he said it 47 times, which is good. I, every time he said it, I agreed with him. So I, I, I think he is a keeper and uh, hopefully he doesn't get uh, sacked 75 times this year, which is the right. way it looks like it's going right now. Right. So, but you were happy. You, you warned me last night that uh, had the Red Sox lost that today would have been a, a really rough day to go through Aristotle. So <laughs> I'm happy they won and, and you're in a good mood. And, and now they get the nice challenge of playing the, uh, the Rays, which is a, oof, that's going to be rough. That, that is going to be rough. Yeah. And frankly, for me, it's, we're all, you know, we're playing with house money at this point. I, I thought they were going to be a 500 maybe ish team. So making the playoffs was great. Tying the Yankees in the standings, but then having the tiebreaker over them was great. Beating them in the wild card was great. So, you know, my, that's kind of my checklist for this year. Anything else? After this would be fantastic. Uh, let's win a couple games against the Rays, give them a challenge. Uh, the bullpen is so bad that it's hard to imagine you can really sustain five or seven game series victory, but you never know. Um, weird things happen in the playoffs. Uh, I also want to kind of a big announcement. So uh, we're starting a GoFundMe. And, you know, after last night, I've become convinced that we are actually responsible for this long period 
of Yankee futility. So in 2009, everyone knows the Yankees won the World Series. In 2010, our family moved to New York, bringing our Red Sox fandom with us. And since then, they have not won the World Series. So I think it's the curse of the parks. And so what I'm thinking about is if we can get Yankees fans to give us money to move out of state, you know, we can move to New Jersey. That's no big deal. Pennsylvania elsewhere. So, you know, if we can get a hundred thousand dollars, a couple hundred thousand dollars, we would be willing to at least think about that and, you know, maybe give the Yankees a chance at least at the world series next year. $200,000 could buy you a mansion in Texas. So the Yankees <laughs> fans would be happy. Uh, Texans would be happy. It would be a, a celebration all over. So anyway, we'll see. I, I think you may have about five or six people that you work with who might contribute to that fund. Yeah. I, I was rousing one of them this morning. So I think, you know, more, more to say on that, but yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of wealthy Yankees fans. So even if you, you know, let's say there's a 1% chance we're responsible for it. Wouldn't you want to insure yourself against that? So just saying. You, you would have to give up your New York state residency though, which is on the subject for today for Aristotle residency and citizenship. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Speaking of which, why don't we transition to that? So we're working through book three of Aristotle's politics, and we're going to work through for today, parts two through five, where he'll go through some interesting definitions and some questions as to what a citizen is, what a state is, what a good citizen is. Uh, what a good man is and whether they're, they're the same thing. But he starts out by asking a question I think that's very uh, pertinent to today's debates. It's the question of ancestry and citizenship. Are you a citizen simply because your family goes four or five generations back and, and, and perhaps is your claim to citizenry uh, that much greater if you say had um, descendants who were uh, on the Mayflower, people who had been here for 400 years. So Aristotle answers this question in, in, in a way that you'd expect. He said that really you are a citizen if you're sharing in the governance of the state. So if you're a functioning part of that state or that government uh, as a person, then that qualifies you for citizenship. He says this, this definition is a much better definition than trying to trace back uh, to uh, one's uh, family lines, et cetera. Now, how would you take that, that definition that he gives us and apply it to the current debate, Matt? So there's a current debate as to who should be a citizen, someone who's born in the United States, and, and certainly there are uh, different parts of our constitution that point to an answer to that question. Right. And, you know, one of the first points he's making is that citizenship is is a conventional matter. And you know, this is very Aristotelian to start with the convention and kind of move toward a philosophical kind of something. And so, you know, you're a citizen if you're a citizen is in some sense his answer. Right. If, if you have certain rights under the laws of a community and, and we could talk about, well, should you or shouldn't you? But then there's the actual practical question of whether you share in, in the governance of that community. And he'll flesh that out a little bit more as we move along, um, you know, the, the big question is, is what it means when the 14th Amendment says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And it's that subject to the jurisdiction thereof that raises certain questions. So if that weren't there, then you would say, okay, well, if you're born in the United States, then you're automatically a citizen, regardless of the status of your parent. But there are questions 
that are regularly raised about whether a person who, who comes to the United States, whether legally or illegally, uh, has a child in the United States who's not a citizen, does that just in and of itself, according to the 14th Amendment, establish that, that person's claim to citizenship? And, and then beyond the factual question, right, and most people believe it does, and that's been the practice. Beyond that question, of course, there's the question of, well, well should it? Right? Is, is this uh, the right way for the United States to define who is and who is not a citizen? Yeah, it's interesting on this point, there are, there are really two answers, I think, that Aristotle gives to that question. Going back to the first, which is this is an individual who shares in the governance of a place. That doesn't mean the same thing as being subject to the jurisdiction thereof, right? Those are two different definitions. So if you, if you stick with the shared governance model, then you might exclude uh, those, those individuals. But then he talks about a, a, another case in which there's a revolution that happens in the city. And after that revolution, there are a whole bunch of uh, individuals who are brought in to uh, the state uh, and made citizens. So it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a war, a revolution, a faction that happens. And he says in that case, that it's better to err on the side of adopting or accepting those individuals into the state and accepting their citizenship. So you might make the case, you know, are there circumstances today where it may not be a revolution or faction or what have you that's happening, but it may be certain circumstances that produce uh, kind of living within our borders uh, that at that time you say, okay, well, I'm not going to go with the shared governance model. I'm going to go with what the, where the circumstances lead me. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, and this is really leading to Aristotle's point about how citizenship relates to the regime. And so there's certain conventional ways of defining citizenship in a democracy. And of course, you know, that, that would be a model that we follow where it's really a, a low bar, right? You're, you're born to citizens, uh, you're born in the country, or you're naturalized, um, and there's really not much more to it in terms of being an American citizen. Now, if, if you were in an aristocracy, then you really wouldn't enjoy at least the full rights of citizenship, probably, unless you had a certain amount of property or you had a certain title or standing, uh, you know, a gentleman or whatever. Think about earlier, say, British regimes or things of this sort. So, you know, this is, this is part of what Aristotle is working on here is how citizenship is, is relative to a regime rather than something that we can say, well, you know, if you're a citizen here, you must be a citizen there. Yeah, and I think one of the things he's going to point to as he moves forward and, and talks about the state on this front is that we have to remember that we're working in real time so that as time goes on, new citizens are born, citizens die. And, and that process of uh, that, that dunamis that, that, that changes the composition of citizenry is also um, at work within the state itself. So its constitutions change perhaps from one thing uh, to another. So he'll go on and he'll talk about uh, the question of states uh, who are in the, in, in the motion of changing. Uh, what, what defines what a state is? Is the principle of the state the same thing at all times or does it change uh, as the constitution uh, of a state changes? And, and here the answer he gives us is that the state's a partnership and uh, a partnership of citizens are within a constitution. So when the form of a government changes and becomes different, when that constitution changes, then it may be supposed that the state is no longer the same. And he, and he uses the example of uh, a tragic a chorus being different than a comic chorus, even though the members of that chorus may be identical. Uh, if the 
if the soul uh, that 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 defines what's taking place within the chorus changes, then the thing itself uh, changes. And we have another kind of quite interesting historical example here, going back to the founding, and uh, with the with the question of whether or not we ought to have maintained our treaties. Uh, with the French uh, after uh, the French Revolution. And, and what were the different positions on this map back at the end of the 18th century? Yeah, very interesting because, you know, not only did you have the French Revolution, which brought in a change in the regime, dramatic change in the regime in France, but almost the moment that French Revolution was completed, or even while it was underway, they declared war on most of Europe. And so you've got this, this ally that you had made an agreement with to basically a defensive alliance to protect their um, American possessions in the event of an attack. That was the arrangement that was made back in 1778 with, with the king, uh, whose interests and yours aligned because you were both interested in bringing an end to the British Empire as it was constituted at that point. But now all of a sudden the French Revolution has taken place. France is grossly irresponsible in declaring war on, on all of Europe involved in this massive conflict. And so uh, poor George Washington has to decide, well, what are we going to do now? Uh, because this, this partner that we had interests aligned with is no longer sharing those interests, even though the regime, the French re revolutionary regime, seems like it's moving in our direction. They're talking about being a republic. And of course, there were many Americans that were excited about that. Washington looks at it from the standpoint of foreign policy and says, yeah, but this is a grossly irresponsible regime that, that's drawn themselves into all kinds of conflict. Are they going to draw us into conflict? And so, you know, Washington issues his famous neutrality proclamation, uh, which was controversial for two reasons. Number one, that it was Washington as president that did it. And there were those that thought it was Congress that ought to declare no war. In essence, if it can declare a war, it can declare no war. So there were those that thought it was a improper executive action on that front. But then also there were those that thought, no, we really had an obligation to France and that while they weren't eager for the United States to get involved in this conflict, that we couldn't say, well, we're, we're entirely neutral, that it would be possible if there were an attack on those French possessions in the Americas, that we would be obliged by that treaty arrangement to come and uh, defend them. So Hamilton defended Washington's position. Uh, Madison and Jefferson took the other side. And this was one of the great early conflicts that led to the establishment of the Federalist Party, led by Hamilton and Washington implicitly and Adams and the Republican Party on the other side with, with Jefferson and, Adam and, and, and Madison at the helm. And it really, I mean, the, that argument, especially between Jefferson and Hamilton, gets to the question of whether or not we ought to encourage the regime to change. And, and whether we ought to encourage its partnership to progress and become something different. And, and Jefferson was a, was a great proponent. In fact, I think he said that every 25 years, right, the, the governing principle of a society ought to be changing as the, the people change. And that's a really interesting concept, right, because it, it puts a great amount of trust uh, in the fact that as we move forward in history, uh, enlightenment, prudence, discernment will grow and, and not decline. How's that uh, working you, out for you? <laughs> I think that's, a, that's well, um, in the last 25 years, not, not, not so much, uh, an, uphill, an uphill battle. Uh, and yet, 
you you can see, you know, why why that idea of Jefferson's would have an appeal that that it 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 is a prospect that we can become uh, more virtuous, that we can become more just and the like, and and um, yet let's let's work forward. Uh, toward becoming better people who can govern better and arrive at a better constitution uh, versus that, well, beware, right, of, of, of what is lost as, as you learn uh, new things. And I think this is, you know, of particular importance to us because here we are talking about a late 18th century case as to whether or not we're going to keep our treaty commitments uh, with the French after the French Revolution or during the French Revolution. But what about the United States today? Certainly, we know that there is an entity, a political entity called the United States. Uh, we know in Aristotelian terms that it's composed of unlike men. Uh, and we know that we have a constitution and we have uh, some, some governing doctrines, but we have a great amount of debate and dispute as to whether or not those governing doctrines and whether or not that constitution, whether or not in Aristotle's terms, that soul or rational principle is the right principle. And I think that there is a, a, a great tendency today, really on either side of the political spectrum, to propose that we ought to leave each to their own appetites. We ought to leave each to their own differing loves uh, or influences so that you know if we can't decide upon a common rational principle that defines what our partnership should be to each his own, and let's go our own way. What are some of the, uh, the, the prospects of, of that and, and maybe the dangers of that? Yeah, well, I mean, that there has been a lot of conversation about this. I've been reading just in the last couple of days, you know, more articles on the, the question of how do we deal with what, what feels like almost civil war sort of conditions and breakup of the union is not a feasible option. So, so what do you do? And, and, you know, I think for the last couple of years, there's been a lot of people more on the right, probably than on the left, but some on the left as well that have said, well, you know, it's it's revitalizing state level decision making that may be the solution to all this. That we can recognize that there are some states uh, that really all states are more homogeneous than the nation is. And so, therefore, you can please a larger percentage of people if key decisions are made at the state level rather than the national level. Uh, that's not obviously been our tendency over the course of the last century. And, and progressivism is one of the main reasons why. So, you know, it, it would certainly be a, a departure from the practice of the, of the left over the last century to try to move in this direction. But you could imagine a scenario where they might say, well, at least we can get the laws on issue X that we want there if we can't get them through the Congress. You think about the challenges right now that the Democrats are having putting together a, a simple majority in the Senate to get uh, President Biden's plans through his $3.5 trillion spending plan through. Um, if you can't do that, then is there some benefit to thinking about you know, state level action rather than always putting all your eggs in the national government basket? Um, but look, the reality is it, it's, it's not easy to maintain. You know, it's one thing to have you know, red states and blue states that have their different range of policies, kind of normal variation. But if you really think about two regimes existing simultaneously under within one nation, that, that's a very difficult thing to hold on to over time. And it's not probably the recipe for peace that everybody's hoping for. 
Yeah, and I think one of the the problems with these this two regime model is that a lot of people that are supporting one or the other regimes believes that that regime is inher- is inherently good, and that uh, anyone who differs from the beliefs of of that regime model is inherently bad. So there's this um, there's this thinking that my vision of a just society that I share with the people who agree with me, this ought to be not simply the way it is in my own backyard, in my own village, in my own city, in my own state, this ought to be imposed upon the national political scene. So there's this this heightening of uh, awareness of one's own sense of what justice is, uh, but but not a, not a, a flexibility uh, with regard to someone who disagrees with your concept. Aristotle asks the question whether the virtue of a good man and the good citizen is the same or not. Today, we tend to have this kind of all-encompassing notion of what the good is that is political in nature. So that if you believe in every progressive policy or every conservative policy, then that's what you're that, that's going to make its way into the definition of what a good citizen is. So if I'm a progressive, and my main concerns are sustainability in, in terms of the environment, uh, and, uh, welfare policies, uh, you, you name whatever they are, Th- that definition of, of what I want in terms of policy outcomes is going to make its way into whether I think the other person across from me is being a good citizen. If you believe in what I believe, then you are acting the part of a citizen. If you don't believe what I believe, then you're a threat to the state. And and it goes both ways. So do you think that this is problematic long-term if we kind of set these high political partisan bars of what the good is? Is that a long-term threat to the practice of citizenship in the United States? Yeah, unquestionably. And yet, you know, this is what's challenging because on the one hand, there's a certain set of fundamentals to the regime that you really expect people to be able to embrace. And, you know, we went through this whenever it was a year ago, some of the, the expectations for citizenship, if you're going to be naturalized citizen, right? It, it's not, it's not content neutral. It's not just answer these questions quickly, but there's other, you know, it's really substantive commitments that you're being asked to make. So there is something there, right? That you have to have some common set of beliefs that, that are definitively American but then obviously uh, it can't be, well, you have to vote this way or vote that way or, or you know, hold all the ideological conventions of this movement versus, versus that movement. And I think one manifestation of the problem that you're talking about is the way that we throw treason around uh, all over the place, right? People are being accused of treason for all kinds of things that are nothing like treason. And one of the great and maybe surprising and underappreciated elements of the constitution is that it gives a very narrow definition of treason. And it would probably do well, we would probably do well to use that definition when we're thinking about accusing somebody of being a traitor. Okay. Are they giving aid and comfort to our enemies, right? Are they literally fighting against the government and against the nation? Um, you know, or are they just disagreeing with me on an issue I think is really important, right? That's not the same thing as treason. Um, and, and even things that are that are really bad, right? Violations of law, um, violations of fundamental conventions or things of this sort, impeachable offenses, right? Uh, don't have to be treason 
um, from the standpoint of the definition that we use. So I think, you know, we, we've cheapened our language a lot when it comes to calling out political opponents and using language that just sort of goes beyond any reasonable assessment of their actions so that we can just exclude them categorically. Yeah, they shouldn't be citizens if they're traitors. Right? Traitors can't be citizens by definition. Um, so I think that is a, a real danger um, in the kind of rhetorical overkill that prevails in our politics that we make it difficult to think about a common citizenship that, that includes people that I disagree with profoundly. Yeah, I think what's happening here is that we're, we're exchanging Aristotle's concept of whether the virtue of the good citizen can be the same as the virtue of the good man for the virtue of the good citizen being the virtue of the hyperpartisan. And I think it's interesting that Aristotle does not go in that direction of partisanship. In fact, he's going to go in a completely different direction when he when he says, yes, they can coincide. You can have a, a good citizen who is a good man, but that virtue is found in that ruler who is a good and wise man. So the, the definition of how these things to how these two things converge uh, is in the person of the statesman and in the, the, the virtue, the virtues uh, present within that statesman, magnanimity, courage, wisdom, prudence, foresight. And we don't have to look too far in American history to see the example of a statesman that may have been the most perfect intersection of the good citizen and the good man in the person of George Washington, correct? Yeah, Washington's a great example, I think, of what Aristotle has in view there. And, and you know, even the reticence to hold office, right, to hold political office is an expression of some of those classical virtues um, and a willingness to work hard to maintain unity. You think about, you know, that administration, he had Jefferson and Hamilton, uh, both as members of his cabinet in his first term. And, you know, you imagine what, what's, what's the equivalent of that today? I take the, the leaders of, of two opposing parties and, and give them the most important offices in your administration and then try to hold them together, right? Try to maintain the unity of that administration. It's a, it's a noble effort, uh, even if it was only partially successful. And you think about the way that Washington really wanted to be above party to the degree that that was possible as, as a symbol of national unity and really as a, as a symbol of this kind of new American citizenship that was just beginning to be practiced with the independent United States. Yeah. And it boils down to a really simple, this is how you do it. You have to know how to rule and how to obey. And, and if you can do those two things, then, then you actually fulfill uh, that definition of, of being a statesman, a democratic statesman. And, and that really is a, a, a great, uh, goal for for any of us, knowing that when we're given authority, that that we ought to rule well, but we ought to rule over others as we'd have them rule over us, as we and and obey as we'd like others to obey as well, uh, and that, that that takes a a different type of person, that takes a different type of regime, but that that model is there, that's present uh, for us, and and that could still be there again. I I'm kind of thinking through what it would look like in the Biden or Trump administration to, to have a Jefferson and a Hamilton. And I'm thinking like who, who you'd bring into that, but uh, it's a, it's a great goal. Yeah. And I think also just to have leaders as president, whose primary focus is not being the leader of their party or of their ideological wing, but actually who are trying to be something of a symbol of national unity, which is what, you know, Washington was 
was having to work through that tension. You know, he sided with Hamilton on all the essential questions. And so in a certain sense, you know, he was a federalist, he was a partisan, but he was working hard not to be that first and foremost, not to be that merely. I just think there's been so many opportunities just in recent weeks where President Biden could have shown some magnanimity right, toward his opponents, uh, toward whether it's on COVID matters or in relationship to this $3.5 trillion spending bill, where you know, rather than crediting the intentions of others, you know, he goes in the opposite direction. He just seems like he's he's become this kind of partisan, um, and maybe it's out of fear of of progressive critique, or maybe it's out of conviction that the people that are opposing him are really really wrong and really really bad for being wrong. Uh, but whatever it is, there's there's been a real lack of a willingness to show that empathy right, that we were all told was one of the uh, defining character traits of, of Joe Biden on the campaign trail. Well, certainly if we're going to have a, a shift in the right direction, I think it'd be helpful to have that shift happen within public affairs because it's greatly on display and, and we're all watching. So um, if those shifts happen within the Biden administration, I think they'd be welcomed and I think they would, they would lead to a good result. Uh, on this front and and uh, lead us to a, a more unified notion of what our citizenship is and what we have in common to make this nation great. Well, more on regimes next week as we continue in book three of The Politics. To close out this week's show, we're going to return to Tocqueville's crystal ball. Uh, back in March, you may recall, we both made our predictions for baseball playoffs and World Series. So I, I said the Braves would beat the White Sox in the World Series. Dave, you said the Braves over Toronto. Um, my teams are alive. One of yours is still alive. Toronto, a near miss. Wasn't a bad call for sure. They had an excellent season. But we're going to refresh those predictions now that the playoffs are actually here and we, we know the teams that are involved and, and make at least quick predictions for each of the rounds of the playoffs moving forward. So we know now that the American League Division Series be Red Sox against Rays, White Sox against Houston. What do you think? So my my predictions are are going to make you happy. I, I think that the Red Sox will will uh, pull off the miraculous and and defeat the Rays, and I think the White Sox will also win. So the team that uh, you thought would make it to the World Series gets to the next round, and I think the Red Sox win as well. That would be great. And in fact, that's more than I expect. So I'm actually going to call for the Rays. Um, and, and the White Sox, I do think the White Sox, I'm going to stick with my predictions overall. So, uh, the White Sox get past Houston. I don't think that'll be an easy series for them for sure, but I think they can pull that off. All right. How about, uh, on the NL side? I just think that, yeah, there's, there's something special about that giants. I mean, they won what 107 games. So I, I think they defeat the winner of uh, the wild card game tonight between the Dodgers and Cardinals. So the giants go on to the championship series. Uh, and said, and so do my Braves. So the Braves Giants in, in the NLCS. Okay. I'm going to say the Dodgers win tonight and then beat the Giants in what will be, I think, a great five-game series. And then Braves over the Brewers in the other division series, setting up a Dodgers and Braves NLCS. Okay. So you've got Braves and Giants in the NLCS. Who's going to the World Series? The Braves. So I stick with that prediction. The Braves go to the World Series and represent the National League. And I'm sorry, American League, they're going to be happy about this. The Red Sox make it to the World Series. So uh, all Boston World Series used to be the Boston Braves and Boston Red Sox. Red Sox and Braves in the series. 
let's hear it for New England parochialism. Yes, so. exactly. <laughs> so, all right, I'm going to take the Braves over the Dodgers. Uh, that'll be an upset for sure, but I think that's also something that that can happen. And the White Sox over the Rays. So last year's two World Series teams make it to the championship series, but both fall there, setting up a new winner. And I'm going to say Braves over the White Sox in the World Series. Dave, do my Red Sox get their fifth championship? No. So that's where your your streak ends. The Braves mm. defeat the Red Sox in the World Series. So we're on the mark okay. with a Braves victory, which would br- bring for myself and my family $1,000. So, and I'll explain <laughs> that if it ever happens. So, all right. You know, I'll be out rolling in it. So, all right. Yeah. Well, that'll help pay for that Houston trip. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, you know, I, I would take that, obviously, given my expectations for this season. It, it's tough if you make it to the World Series not to win it, but we're four for four in the 21st century that would still be adding to our claim to be the team of the 21st century. So, you know, Yankees, you can have the 20th century that's done and dusted. Now we've got 21st century, the Red Sox, the dominant team. If the giants don't win, we'll still be the only team to have four world series in the 21st century. So Jeffersonian way of looking at. uh, Yep. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thanks as always for joining us. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also contact us at democracy in America today at gmail.com. We look forward to talking to you next week. Twitty, twitty vision.